Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a special episode whereby we respond to a whole pile of questions that we were asked in preparation for the last panel that was just recorded, uh, which we had presented at Gen Con 2018. So, for this call, this follow-up call, we have Anna Mead, Eloy Lasanta, and Sarah Doombringer Richardson. Uh, and Jerry was unable to attend for this particular call, so we miss him already. The funny we thing do. is, honestly, the other day I was trying to remember what Sarah's last name was, and literally <laughs> it was just Sarah Doombringer. That's her last name, right? Like, that's her name. <laughs> well, I, I do love that Jason just hyphenated it. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's exactly. As if I, <laughs> I married into, or yeah, I married out of it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I didn't know if it was Richardson Doombringer or Doombringer Richardson. I mean, I'll let you decide. <laughs> um, it's Doombringer Richardson the third motherfucker. <laughs> so is the motherfucker part of the name, or is it just for emphasis? Just, just. That's Sarah's call. Both. <laughs> On a related note, this podcast contains mature content. Enjoy. <laughs> Man, I run everything. Please, oh, every kid has heard white the word women. <laughs> I'm not editing that shit out. All right. <laughs> so, let's get to it. Uh, so, yes, when we recorded this panel um, one week ago, podcasting time, uh, we solicited a pile of questions ahead of time from the audience. And we were unable to answer it in the tight confines of Gen Con. So, we're going to do that here. So, the first question is, I've got a game. It's playtested. How do I get to market? Playtest some more. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to answer this one. It's not ready. (laughs) No. You know what the weird thing about that is, is honestly, when people say, like, I've been designing my game for like the last six years. I always go, ooh, why? Oh my gosh. Yeah. It should have been released at least four years ago then <laughs> at that point. Um, yeah. I use my first editions as playtesting for my second edition. Um, but no, honestly, the question is then what's, what's the market to you? Um, is the market PDF? Because yeah. PDF is extremely easy. Is the market stores? Well, that's much more difficult. Uh, so I would say, how do you get it to market? How do you get it to the PDF market? Well, you export a PDF and you throw it up on drive through and then you got it, kind of. Like, well, I mean, not like on, not like in Word docs or anything, Sarah. It's okay, <laughs> calm down. I saw you your saw, You saw how much that hurt me. Somebody was totally going to do that. <laughs> I, I, I know that they said it's play tested, but in my brain, I'm also thinking, like, I'm going play to down. market, not to the next step is after writing, then you get the editing right. and then you get the layout yeah. and you get a, like in my brain, like it's saying like to market then at that point, but maybe those are additional steps that also need to be addressed. Even though I think we actually addressed those in the, we did. Of the thing itself. So we probably don't need to rehash that here. Um, so yeah, so if it's PDF, export a PDF, upload it to drive-through mm-hmm. and then um, tell all your friends and family about it and then hope that they also have friends and family 
who like games and then they'll share it and then they'll have two friends and then they'll have two friends and so on and so on. Uh, that's how I got my first game out. Well, and call so. Aloy and he'll publish it. <laughs> well. <laughs> Just kidding, friend. I'm very particular. <laughs> I mean, if the question is, how do I get a publisher? That's kind of a totally different question, right? And I and, think that that's a question for later on. So Exactly. Yeah. So we'll, we'll just leave that where it is. I think that was a great answer. So. Okay, awesome. Um, Go me. I suppose the key question is, what is market? Yeah. yeah. And um, also, you know, like Eloy was poking at, just the idea that you might be ready for different markets at different times. Mm-hmm. So like Eloy does first editions, um, Magpie Games and myself, we do ash cans. So an ash can is not a finished game. It goes out on drive through and then we also have printed ones we sell at conventions. I mean, that is our way of testing the market to see if people are at all interested in this game before we then go and make a big finished thing with lots of pretty art um, mm-hmm. and more writing and editing. Uh, so. That's so strange. I have this amazing ash can on my <laughs> side table. Oh, so this is Velvet Glove, <laughs> written by the brilliant Sarah Doombringer Richardson, and it is a beautiful ash can. And so, <laughs> excellent. And you, you don't know the ship, but I embarrassed very. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I just okay. looked over. I was like, oh look, there's an ash can. <laughs> And a brilliant one. Uh, so, on that note, let's move on to question two. Outside of the mechanical or thematic design of the game, which part of development uh, and real ease... Real ease. Uh, release, release, <laughs> extra space. Real ease. Uh, is the most challenging for you and in what way? Anna, why don't you take it from here? Yeah. So I was guessing that this question was asking about marketing um, because I was assuming that if you're not talking about design or setting or anything like that, what you're really talking about is selling. And so if I've misinterpreted your question, stranger, I apologize. But um, once your game is out, you really should market it if you would like to sell a copy or two. And um, for a lot of people, they really struggle with that. It's actually not the hardest thing for me because marketing is my thing and it's what I do. But I thought of our group, I was probably one one of the people who would be better equipped to um, talk about marketing. Um, it's easier when other people can market something you've designed. <laughs> That's my understanding at least. That's what I'm good at because marketing often involves like the second voice. And if you can get someone else to be like, oh, hey, this game is awesome, like I just did with Sarah's, it's a lot easier than Sarah saying, oh, my game is awesome, buy it. (laughs) And it is, of course, but then it kind of, it sounds better, right? So anytime you can get your friends and family to share, uh, to start a buzz, to try and talk about, there's Thunderclap, there's all kinds of social media options. There's... um, To me, that's the most exciting part of, like, you've created this cool thing and you want people to play it. I mean, you don't want it to exist in a vacuum. So, yeah, get it out there and and get the word out. You know, go to conventions and 
run some games. Have your friends run some games. We had a great arrangement with Jason where we ran his games and he ran our games. And I mean, that's just a great way to get people excited about it. So that's what I think is cool about marketing games. Well, yes, indeed. I did run Becoming the Ashcan <laughs> from Dangerous Games. Thank you for <laughs> giving me the opportunity to name drop your excellent game. Uh <laughs> And that's part of the thing, actually getting it, building a community of like-minded people who, by supporting them, like, the community portion of it is challenging and rewarding at the same time, and takes a surprising amount of effort, uh, uh, compared to what it looks like at the onset. But yeah, building a large community of peers, of colleagues, of friends uh, has remarkable benefits for game design and is a lot of hard, bloody work that is radically <laughs> different from mechanical and thematic design of games. Totally different skill sets, in my experience. Mutual admiration societies are a huge boon. Sarah, any ideas? Um, let's see. One of the things, in addition to what you two are talking about, but talking about, you know, difficulty in designing, um, one thing that I would just uh, mention that people should keep in mind is a lot of times you start out thinking, I have all these ideas. I have like five different ideas that need to be games right now. And whenever you're first starting out, that can be overwhelming. Um, so I would just uh, caution when thinking about which part of development release is most challenging. Um, remember that there will always be time for those other ideas. Like if you don't make that game right this second, settle down, it will be okay. You can make it later. <laughs> Uh, because that's something that I know can be challenging for me. I currently am working on Velvet Glove, but I had another game idea pop in my head last Friday, and I'm like, now is not the time, brain. <laughs> now is always the time. Well, especially <sighs> when you get stuck. It's so yeah. tempting to be like, oh, that's okay, I'll work on this other thing. And then all of a sudden, you're too far away from your first plan. And And that's how a lot of people fall into the trap of never actually finishing their game. Because you can yeah. just keep chasing the high of, you know, starting the new design. So don't don't fall into that trap. Eloy. Yep, yep. Um, I think, I mean, I think keeping schedules is good. I, I also have that same issue of having way too many ideas going on at one time. Not um, you. No, not <laughs> me. Like, there's a reason why Ampere 4, I think, took an extra year to come out than the other ones and it's because uh it's because i decided to de redesign part-time gods entirely um in the time that i should have been working on the next amp book uh but that happens see i don't actually have that control mechanism that sarah was talking about <laughs> that, that part of your brain that says no you shouldn't do that right now i go nah i got time let's just do it um <laughs> But uh, and also talking kind of about what Anna was talking about with building community is it's that's probably one of the most difficult things to do. And uh, for instance, like with what Sarah does is you know she works with Magpie and they do a lot of things that are 
Powered by the Apocalypse. And it might even sound easy that it's like it's easier to plug into an existing community, but that's even almost harder to do um, because then it's like if the quality level isn't there, if, if you know, if, if you're going to get so much more scrutiny coming into a brand new community, uh, I'm sorry, into an existing community versus building your own, but building your own will take much longer. That's so very, very true. that's essentially because, um, you know, I follow Magpie stuff and that, that's, that's where Magpie is right now. It's like, you know, they're the tippy top of Powered by the Apocalypse games. Um, if they release a crappy one, oh my God, <laughs> are they going to hear, they're never going to hear the end of it if they, if they release a crappy one. Um, they haven't yet, which is good. Yeah. I'm just saying. I'm just I care. just felt you jinx us. I felt that. <laughs> I am, oh, I believe in you and your design ability, but exactly. that never, ever happened. Um, well. but what, but what I've been doing though is mostly creating my own communities uh and i have several different communities around each of my games uh and i've been trying to find ways to kind of bridge the gap between them to make them one maybe overall third eye games community instead of an amp community and a person god's community and a crusade community and that's harder to do than being mostly because i've purposefully made every game very different so they don't really appeal to the same people. What uh, you mean, your superheroes and your mermaids? Uh, are they're they're not always in the same I mean, fan? It does. It doesn't. It does. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's it's cool. Um, so yeah, I didn't have anything new to add. I just wanted to remark on what the two of them kind of noted. So. Well, and you have control over your production schedule, right? So if you decide you want to go off and redo part-time gods, that's cool because you're the one who gets to decide. That's yeah, that's a lot of freedom. That's Pretty good. much. Um, I also have a project manager, and of course, doing things like that makes him makes him shake his head at me. And I try to not do that. Like, hey, Phil, I'm going to entirely redesign our our release schedule now because I have a cool idea. And he goes, <laughs> oh, Lloyd. Not again. This is why I don't have a project manager. Oh, no, but I that way I can get away that. with doing that. With no, and no one will talk back to me except my therapist. Um, uh, my, my project manager uh, fulfills both roles. Oh, oh, good. Useful. Oh, nice. <laughs> Dual classing. Um, so, next up, what is the best value services to ensure a successful Kickstarter? Um, I don't think I understood the question. I didn't either. I, I was like, what's the best value services? Like people so to hire to run it for you? Or? If you were trying to run a Kickstarter, mm -hmm. where do you spend money to make that a successful thing? That's wow. how I'm interpreting oh. that. Oh, uh, on a graphic designer to make it look pretty. <laughs> That's like and a pretty much all you need to make a Kickstarter. Video. What's that? Well, actually. A videographer to make a good video is important. Like, I think a good video for Kickstarter is nice. I, I think that that's, it can be important. Having a good video is more important if you're going to have a video because you don't want to have a bad video. But also, I'm not, I, like, my last few, I've decided that I was like, I'm not going to put a video up. And they've funded really well anyway, like pretty nice. much to the same amount that I was expecting to fund. Um, 
I've, I, I don't know, because even when I have a video, I find that it's rarely watched. Uh, like, people oh, don't... Really? Yeah, like, people, if they do click it and watch it, they watch the first couple, like, you know, things just to make sure it's not a bad one. And that's what I'm saying. Like, if you're going to have a video, make sure it's a good freaking one. But <laughs> I'm not even sold that, that, that that's where mm-hmm. money has to go. Like, if you have extra money, definitely spend it there. You know, but... Um, yeah. Sarah was going to say something, though, before I started rambling. No, it's it's cool. Like, I agree. That's... That's one thing Magpie has determined whenever we're we're looking at Kickstarters. And as we kind of like alluded to in the previous question, like all three of us, four of us, uh, have like work in different environments. So the fact that I work with Magpie means that, you know, I work with three other designers who all have different skills. Um, and so that admittedly gives us an advantage. But whenever we're putting together our Kickstarters, like we just did Zombie World. And, you know, we ended up going with a very minimal video uh, that is Brendan with his voiceover, which is adorable, (laughs) um, over mainly just graphics. Um, And then myself and Miguel, uh, who is our fellow uh, currently at Magpie, who's who's doing um, graphic design and game design with us, uh, we did the actual the way the page looks. And then Brendan wrote the entire page. <laughs> and Marissa fulfilled the role of art director by uh, first making sure what the, the product looked like, deciding what the cards looked like, getting all the art, and then uh, giving us an idea of what the page should look like. And then Mark D.S. Truman did all of the financials, <laughs> um, as well as, as was like co-designer. So I'm saying all of those things and bringing up all the different roles because like, all of those things need to happen for a successful Kickstarter. It, it, you know, you might not realize, might not call what you're doing art directing, but that is what you're doing. It's just easy at Magpie because we all have separate roles. So what, what both Eloy and Anna are saying is right. Like, you want your page to look professional. So we've kind of gotten our pages down to they all start to, to have similar feels that are tailored to the product. Um, but even if it's not fancy, even if you don't have like ours with the, the graphical headers and the mock-ups of the products, it just really needs to be clear. So paying people to help you make those images is a really good idea. Making sure that people see your page before you launch so you don't ha- you're not stuck with that embarrassing typo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And like while the Kickstarter is going on, you're going to get all these offers from weird ass oh companies God. that you've never heard of who are offering, <laughs> going to offer to do all this marketing for you. And they're scams. Yeah, don't. Pretty much. Don't do it. <laughs> 99.8% of the time, they're scams. Um, and don't underestimate like the value of actual plays and interviews and all the marketing you should do before the Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Before the Kickstarter. That's a yeah, super before, important yeah. thing there. Before right. Like we're, the Kickstarter. Our next Kickstarter won't be for two months, and I already today sent out emails about interviews. Yeah. You gear up uh, well in advance. I mean, that's a, a marketing trick, right? I mean, you don't just be like, okay, I have a Kickstarter. Come back in. Like, you have to get people excited. 
you know, you can tease artwork, you can tease excerpts, there's all kinds of fun things you can do. And I, Aloy, I think you have a great point. Uh, You don't have to have a video and definitely a bad video is worse than no video. I think you're, you have such a reputation for excellence that people are going to back your stuff because they know they like your writing and you know, but for somebody who this is their very first rodeo, I think having a clean video that has like even just some art and some music or some voiceover or something like I've decided not to back stuff because I was like, oh, it looks like they did it in their garage. I'm probably just a snob. <laughs> no, I am also a snob. I have watched, I have watched videos and I went, I am not giving that guy my money. Oh, God. Never. <laughs> That's why I said, like, it honestly, if you do a video and it's bad, it's better That's to just right. not have a video. Well, like, and you, can, <laughs> you don't have to spend a ton of money. I don't want to make it sound like you should go spend thousands of dollars on a videographer, but, like, m- Put some effort into it if you're going to have it, I guess, is, is a better explanation. So. And I mean, on that same way, since I'm one of those people, I don't watch videos most of the time. Your video has to be really, there has to be a reason for me to watch it. Um, so for me, much more important is your text. And if it is badly written, if it has spelling errors, if it's just not compelling, or I can't figure out what the fuck you're selling, I'm not going to back <laughs> it. Totally. Yeah, no, that's a good call. Uh, again, as an editor, please, for all that is holy, have somebody who has a good grasp of English language look it over before you make it live. Um, and you also should know how much everything's going to cost before you get there. Oh. So whenever you're talking about best value services, you know, UPS and stuff can be your friend as you're trying to figure out how much shipping prices might be or how to package stuff so that it doesn't get messed up. And then, uh, I mean, we always use backer kit. It's really handy. Mm. Yep. Um, and I have just one more thing. Best value added services. Contributors. Specifically mm. contributors that don't look like me. Oh, Jason. Okay. <laughs> um, because. Let's fight. We want uh, the, <laughs> the strongest okay. thing that you can have for a Kickstarter is a community of people, each of which has their own unique social circles. So for instance, on the note of advertising ahead of time, uh, I have, uh, and getting multiple contributors for an upcoming project, which is going to be in exactly two months from the time of releasing this episode, after the war will be coming to Kickstarter. And I have a number of amazing contributors on that project, such as Kofkov, one of the people on this call. Who is that? Sarah? Yep. Oh, the magnificent. She Sarah she the laughed. magnificent. Um, so, um, because of that, I'm able to tacitly poke at Sarah's social network. Because Sarah's going to naturally want to promote the thing that she got paid money to write amazing words for. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is one of the tactics that I find very useful to hire a wide variety of people uh, at a good rate so that they have a positive experience to help work on your thing. Um, frequently, stretch goals fill this role. 
and I have found that incredibly useful. Um, the giant case in point in that is Hillfolk, where pretty much everyone in the RPG industry worked on that book. Um, and several people not in it. It, it. it was impressive. So, yeah, uh, that is Best Value Services to Ensure a Successful Kickstarter. And I think that that's okay advice, but at the same time, a lot of people's first Kickstarters, or maybe even their second Kickstarters, are literally like them making a game. Hmm. Uh, so they might not have that wealth of contributors in order to really tap and do stuff. So it really just, it kind of goes back to, to the original point of kind of making network of friends within the industry, and maybe you can tap them to kind of share it around and stuff, but... Um, yeah, like, it's so weird, like, because I didn't start hiring people to really work on my big games that I had on Kickstarter for a bit, you know, like, it took me a bit before I really started doing that. So I also would say, like, don't feel bad if you don't have a huge collaborator wall of people on the project and stuff like that. Like, it's cool. Like, sometimes it's just you and or maybe just you and, like, a dude that you know. Like, just go for it. Like, whoever, you know? <laughs> So the reason I offered to fight Jason, which is unfair because he's Canadian and therefore I'd win. You would. <laughs> and then I'd go to my free health care and, you know. Whatever. Oh. Oh, burn. <laughs> All the Americans felt that. Um, is actually because of a practice that I don't think Jason does. Um like whenever he invited me to contribute I, I, I really felt it was done out of like mutual respect and stuff um, despite having talked to me several times but please <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> um, there, something to avoid is uh, if for example you're a straight white dude and you're like, here's my project. And then I, I go in and I look at it and I see that the only women and people of color who contribute to it are only stretch goals. I'm that's not, that's not cool. That's not good. You need to also include women and people of color as part of your actual team. We are, we are not just stretch goals. And then I will add to that as well and say, don't hire the woman to write the woman part of the game. Don't hire oh, the person of color oh. to write the person of color part of the game. I had two yeah. of those offers given to me at Gen Con. I had two people who were like, oh, I'm writing this game, and there's this thing where there's black people in it too, and I was hoping I could get you to come write in it for diversity. And I'm like, no, thank you. Like, oh. yeah, like you should want me to come write in it because I'm a great writer. not you're a great writer. Not because you want me to write that part that you'll get in trouble if you write it. You know, it's like... <laughs> or you feel like you'll get in trouble to write it. Like, you probably won't. You can probably just write it. As long as you're historically accurate, you'll be fine, probably. Nobody you know, notices but... in this damn industry. <laughs> exactly. Nobody, and, and that's the thing, honestly, about diversity in general, which is, it's an interesting thing. It's like, we pay a lot of attention to that because we are. We're deep in it, Right. But from a customer standpoint, they don't care. They, like, a lot of the time, they really don't. So as long as what you write isn't, like, just grossly untrue, stereotypical, or just, like, wrong, you'll probably be okay. I mean, you, you know, it depends on you, really. You know. <laughs> All right, now we don't have to fight. 
Yeah. Excellent. I don't know. We can still fight later. I mean, if you feel like it. All right. Um... <laughs> All right. Uh, so, how should one go about acquiring a publisher for their design? Sarah, do you want to kick this off? Uh, sure. Um, so, I acquired a publisher <laughs> as a job um, through basically a little bit of networking, a little bit of luck. Uh, so part of it was just taking advantage of, you should take advantage of opportunities that present yourself. So like I went to the hacking as women workshop at Gen Con in 2014, despite being firmly convinced I would never want to actually design a game. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I took a chance. I was like, all it's costing me is a little bit of time. It might be cool. And guess what? Now I have a job. Other than that, uh, Another thing that helps a lot, uh, both Anna and Eloy reference playtesting, uh, is I went to Metatopia, which is a game design conference I think we mentioned in the two-hour yeah, version of this. Um, so going there and playtesting it so that a bunch of designers got to play my game. Um, I mean, Magpie will actively go to Metatopia looking for people to publish, and I don't believe we're the only ones. Um, so that's how they... <laughs> They already kind of knew me, but it solidified me, I guess. And then we also have published uh, ash cans for Kevin Petker and Brandon. I'm not going to murder his last name again. No, do uh, it. For do Passion. It. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Kate uh, Bullock, we just published her ash cans. So, like, uh, we do occasionally run into people and we're like, I like the cut of that game you have there. We will publish it for you. The cut of their games, Jib. Yes. <laughs> Anna. So. Uh, Anna, you are muted. Or your mic's not working. No. You guys hear me? Yep. Oh, yes. yes. There. Weird. Uh, well, so I accidentally, my dongle is um, tentative. And I My actually dongle is tentative. <laughs> I was like, I hope this didn't break it. Um, so <laughs> I always thought the word dongle was so interesting. It is. Well, that that Weird started a thing at a at a tech conference. But anyway, <laughs> um, so I've looked at a couple different sites. I just had <laughs> Uprising, the dystopian uh, universe role playing game, published through Evil Hat which is very exciting. It's my first major RPG credit through them, though I've written on a bunch of stuff and proved and blah, blah, blah. So I got that job through people I know. Big surprise. I feel like this industry is definitely about relationships for better or for worse. Um, so getting a job that way, you know, just simply meeting other designers, other publishers. Metatopia is a fantastic idea. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, unsolicited submissions rarely work. But if you have a system you really love or a publisher you really love, you know, and you get a chance to chat with them or shoot them an email, you know, a lot of people will respond to a friendly inquiry. Sometimes the bigger names uh, get bombarded, so don't feel bad if you never hear back. 
right? They get lots and lots of submissions and queries. Um, and then, you know, as a, a small uh, publisher ourselves, I mean, if, if you can't get in through the door of a major publisher, it, that is another option. It's uh, definitely an option that Aloy has done to great success and a lot of other people I know and you can publish only your own work. You can go and publish other people's work. I prefer to publish other people's work in general. Um, we've got a couple of novels out, um, not games specifically, uh, other than the Becoming Ashcan. But um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> publishing's a really tough business and it's very competitive and you have to really be committed to your vision and your dream if you're going to make it happen. That's just all there is to it. If you're half-hearted about it, nobody's going to buy it. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, <laughs> I have two things to say. One would be don't. Don't get another publisher to do it. Just publish it yourself. It's so freaking easy yeah. nowadays. Just right. do it. Yeah. Right? The There's an second, argument for that. Yeah, the second thing that I would say would be um, a lesson that I learned a long time ago from my mom when I was a kid, and it was a very wise lesson that has opened up many doors for me. And it is that um, you should always ask. And because the worst thing somebody can say is no. Like, you know, so if there's a cool publisher you want to work with, send them an email, say, hey, you want to work with me? They might say no, but guess what? They might say yes. Um, it could happen. So I would just go, just jump, just go for it. Just do it. So just either just Mom's do it yourself lady. or just, she is, but you know, don't let her know. That. <laughs> Hopefully she won't be listening to this because we swear a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please. My mom swears more than I do. I was just going to say, like, there's no guarantee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Next question. Next question, question five. How do you balance an RPG across as many levels as possible when the system is rather complex? Is it just a long slog, or is there a faster method than what I currently use? Eloy! Eloy! So I had actually, I had specifically asked to answer this question, and, um, and it's for this reason. Uh, don't. <laughs> don't attempt to balance your game as much as possible. It is the most fruitless and laborious thing that you will ever do in game design is try to balance it to the extent that no one will ever be able to break it or manipulate it at all in any way. Like, no, like, you, you make it, you, you have to make the game the way that it's meant to be played and there might be ways for min-maxers and stuff to go and manipulate it and, and abuse it, but who cares? Like, you're not making a game for those people. Like, you're making it for the experience that you're making. So um, how do you make sure that your game is balanced? Well, you play it and you make sure, you know, like, you play testing. obviously. That's a big answer to this uh, because it can just be a matter of adjusting a few numbers here. Oh, well, I gave this guy a plus four, but this one is a plus two, and a plus four is way more, so they don't come into, you know, they just kind of decimate all of the enemies and stuff like that. Like, that stuff's easy, right? But to try, again, so life isn't balanced. So <laughs> you can't balance a game 
because a game is really just you telling a story about your character's life and life shouldn't be balanced it's actually one of the most annoying things that i that i have seen in games is when it's too balanced um where you know oh well you know because then it's almost like a miniatures fight you know it's just like well this adventure um requires fifth level characters and it's got a challenge rating six big bad guy and four challenge rating three and so it's, it's like perfectly designed for you to like beat it because if because if it was a seven and all of the minions were fours you'd lose because that's how it's balanced and it's like no that's terrible game design don't do uh, that i like games where i lose Sometimes I'll just grind my character into dust. Exactly. I'm not a min master. I'm like, what's the worst thing that could happen? Do that. Yeah. <laughs> so your most of the time, what I'll do is I'll be like, I'll be like, you know, you see this big giant monster. Well, we're, we we want to try and fight it. And I go, all right, so I, I'm going to, I'll give you like a roll or something. All right. Oh, you succeeded. Cool. Your character says that's probably a bad idea. Um, what <laughs> do you still want to do that? <laughs> Yeah, let's go and fight it. We can win anything. We're the heroes of the story. I mean, okay. You, you said you're going to go and fight it. I mean, it's going to fight you back. It's not balanced, just so you know. But I warned you. Um, so, so anyway. Um, so that's, that's my answer. You're responsible for the player's bad choices. Exactly. Right. It's probably a bad answer, though. I'm, probably Sarah and Anna well, have better answers than me. No, no. I actually think that's a great answer. It's just... I... I think that if you are making games and you are just so concerned with how uh, to make the game balanced, you're not necessarily making the game fun or playable. I think your point about balance is excellent because life isn't perfect, like you say, and some of my most memorable games were when I went skidding into home base. Um, mm -hmm. So, or if you skid in the home base and it was an automatic out and it was obvious and you failed miserably. Like, exactly. <laughs> so I'm going to leave this to Sarah, who is now making body language that has something to say. I, I felt like maybe I needed to. Um, <laughs> although I agree. Um, so... Not only, like, can't you balance it across all levels, but you shouldn't. Right. Because you're making a game that does a specific thing. And it can't do everything unless it's a boring-ass game. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm looking at you, beloved d and I love you, but you don't do everything. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's why I play a bunch of different games, because they all do different things, you know? I, I play D&D &D right. when I want to kill goblins and exercise, you know frustration that way and <laughs> i play apocalypse world whenever i'm like let's have some you know post-apocalyptic hot sexy gun times uh so whenever you're trying to balance your game you're probably making you're you're grinding off the parts that make it cool and fun and yours and so just stop doing that mm -hmm. i like that uh i have one suggestion when it comes to trying to balance a game yeah. you are trying to balance a game so that it is equitably enjoyable for the players, not for the characters. Hmm. Make sure that it isn't a situation where, yeah, so this one class is going to have 
80% of the screen time in any game because they have all of these cool powers that are going to suck up all the game time and uh, everyone else is, um, well, they might get to say a couple words. Um, make sure that everyone who is playing the game is able to enjoy the game uh, at, at, at roughly the same amount of very high. <laughs> you, you want to maximize the net enjoyment out of the entire group. So balance it I don't know. for I think, player I think enjoyment, that, not think, character power. I think that that on, I think that onus of that in particular of balancing the character powers, that's on that's that is part of game design, but that's also on the GM. You know, because like for instance, if if you make the most badass warrior in the world and I make the socialite who can talk the pants off of anybody, you know, but then you throw us into a war, uh, you know, a battlefield. Well, obviously, I'm not going to be very good there. So, don't do that. Like, I made a socialite throw me into some show socialite stuff. But uh, if you know, it's, that's that also becomes that sort of thing. But the key question is, if the socialite, all of their mechanics come down to roll one die. If it's over a ten, uh, you succeed done and battle takes 10 hours because it's a deep uh, intricate complex system then you're mm -hmm. clearly saying you don't want people to be socialites oh yeah totally so if you want to make sure that 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 socialite is no fun okay that's fine just put that on the tin and say this is a shitty game if you want to be playing power politics it's a really good game if you want to play sword politics yeah, but that's not even that's not even a balancing issue though. That's a game design issue. Like yeah, yeah. you obviously want to give, you know, you want to give opportunities for everybody to be able to impact the world in the way that they want to. Yeah. Um so yeah. Yeah. So that fair. same thing. All right, we can move on, sorry. All right, sorry. <laughs> um question 6. Stop apologizing to each other. <laughs> Going to get in an apology loop. Uh -huh. I'm sorry. Uh Question six, how to turn a story or setting concept into a workable game system? I, I think I had asked for this one, too. Um, yep. It's a, it's a broad question that can't be answered easily. Uh, but I will answer with, what is the thing that is cool about your setting? Make sure you make that part of the mechanics. Like Was that... that was that too was that too easy like it seems like too easy of an answer um you know uh i mean so when i did part-time god second edition it's about you know regular people who become gods and but you know in their striving for divine power their personal lives invade that quest so i created a mechanic for that it, it does that it does exactly that while you're playing the game Every so often, you're going to get a call, you're going to get an email, you're going to get a text, you're going to have someone demanding your attention, and you're, and it makes you have to choose. I mean, am I going to keep going after the goblet, or am I going to, you know, go pick up my kid from, you know, basketball practice? Like, you know, it's like, you know, it depends on Both what you Both have consequences. Do. Both have consequences, exactly. Um, you know, so... But like in first edition, I didn't have that, and it was uh, a lesser game because of it. Uh, and I, you know, because when I was first designing games, I maybe I didn't know this little tidbit of 
hey, what's cool about your thing? Make sure that the game it reinforces that thing. Um, and not just thematically. There needs to be something there to grip mechanically. And I think we had talked about this in the larger thing because in, in the larger panel that we did, the main reason for game design is for you to design mechanics that pull the players into the setting. That's what the mechanics are there for. Um, so, I mean, because you can have an amazing setting and the mechanics are terrible, and then they're like, these do nothing for me, I'm going to strip these out and just play it with whatever my other favorite system is. You know, so you do need to have, they need to balance each other there a little bit, system versus uh, setting, in order to make sure that your game uh, is enjoyable to play, I guess would be the, the way to say it. Or, or that it delivers what what's intended. I think I will have an unpopular opinion. Mm -hmm. And that my answer will be, before you make that system, go and make sure there's not another system that already exists <laughs> that you can't adapt to what you want to fucking do. Yes. Because <laughs> your homebrew system probably sucks. It does. People may not want to play it. Um, someone says homebrew to me and I back away because I've been in too many bad ones. You're going to have exceptions like Eloy. Yeah. He's exceptional. But uh, oh, a lot of people like... <laughs> well, it's true. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people like you get caught up in doing the system and like he's saying, you lose track of what's awesome. So maybe don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe try to adapt something that already exists. Yeah. You can make a fate world or powered by the apocalypse or uh, if you are awesome at setting and you're struggling with designing the mechanics, let me encourage you to partner with somebody who is good at mechanics. Even if you're using somebody else's uh, system, mm -hmm. I am excellent at setting. I wrote all the setting for uh, uprising and I was good at like bouncing mechanics off of Brian who wrote all the mechanics, but had I not had him, there wouldn't have been a game because that's his forte. Like it's fine to play to your strengths. Some people are right. great at both. Awesome. Yeah, I'm it wouldn't not... have been a game, it would have been a novel. Right, <laughs> exactly. exactly. No, that's, that's 100%. Yeah. Like I built this like brilliant, cool world and had I not had his amazing and subtle backstabbing mechanics it would not have been the game that it needed to be mm -hmm. so if you can't do it to work with or like uh, Sarah says you know go use fate or use use a system that you can tweak just a little uh, to make your setting become a thing because otherwise you could I mean how many people do the we know they've spent years making their homebrew system and it still doesn't work yeah, <laughs> yeah. All I will say to that is that I don't think that Sarah's opinion is unpopular. I think that's actually the popular opinion nowadays. Um, <laughs> and actually, I think actually designing your own stuff is a lot less popular. Everything nowadays that comes out and is super popular, sells a bunch, and get, hits big on Kickstarter, a lot of them are you know, made for 5th edition, or powered by the apocalypse, or is fate edition of some game, or... Uh, you know, one thing or another, like a lot of them are kind of t 
a lot of designers nowadays are tapping into existing systems, which is cool, which is why I kind of created my own existing system with the PIP system, because now I have people who are wanting to tap into the kind of ecosystem and everything that I created, and that's cool. But for me, I think you still get your most bang out of bang for your buck when you create your own thing that does exactly what you want it to do as opposed to having to shoehorn what you want into an existing system. And I, and I, that wasn't what you said, Sarah, I know, I'm just saying. Because um, what you said was make sure, I mean, see if it does what you <laughs> want it to do already. I'm not, so I wasn't trying to say like your, your opinion was wrong there. But what ends up happening is instead of what you said, people go, well, I play a lot of Power by the Apocalypse, so I'm definitely going to make it Power by the Apocalypse. Like, yeah. but no, though, but hold on, though, like take a step back. Like, just because you like it doesn't mean it's right for that game. So, there you go. Um, just one last oh. thing, and then we'll move on if that works. Uh, and it was that from Sarah? Was that... Oh. Yeah, it looked like Sarah was about to say something. Yeah, Sarah was about to say something. So, Sarah, say a thing. Okay, I, I was going to in interject in a completely unrelated way that uh, the game idea I mentioned that I had last Friday when I should be working on Velvet Glove was not powered by the apocalypse. And I was like, what the hell is this? What are you doing in my head? <laughs> and it's like, no, come over here and we can do this. And I'm like, oh, I've already got another like OSR thing going on. I don't need, ah. So also designing yeah. across multiple systems mm. <laughs> can be really hard. <laughs> it can be very hard, but it can also be very rewarding. Like that's why I play so many games. Yeah. Like, I play so many games because you know, obviously I want to play the game for the experience that it gives me, but also like I'm always picking up like, ooh, that's a cool way that they did that. I wonder if I could do something similar to that, maybe twist it a bunch and make it my own, you know, but like, you know, like uh, some of my systems are varied copied bits from a bunch of different systems I've played over the last decade that I that I kind of tweaked slightly to make them my own and then slapped them together and then like by golly, they worked, you know, so it's like, you know, it's, it's yeah. one of those things. Well, it's like Magpie, we try and do a regular game night with mm -hmm. all of us just so we can play and then like tear it apart and look at its scuts, mm -hmm. uh, which we're like, it's, it's better and easier and more informative to do that after you play the game rather than just read it or something. Plus we all like playing games together. Exactly. But I think that playing a bunch of games has helped my game, my, my actual design process more than a lot of other things that I thought would. And we can clearly keep talking until Anna gets back. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was actually, I was actually going to say, um, it's, it's pretty much eight o'clock. I, I think I hit my last question, so I may need to duck out here. I, oh. I told my family it was going to be an hour. And, I, I uh, apologize for that. Yeah, we uh, hit that hour. There's now, just, so. yeah, yeah. There's uh, a lot of awesome, and we can continue uh, finishing off this call and let you be. Yeah. Yes. And hopefully so, Anna will rejoin. I'm, I'm sure she will. I, it looked like she was fluctuating in and out, so right, right. I think she probably just had a, either a computer glitch or a router or something. Yeah. Something like that. I'll listen to the tail end of this when I'm done. Uh, when it gets posted, I'll listen to the tail end. But wonderful to see you guys all again. Uh, you know, we'll talk soon. We always do. Uh, I will talk to you guys later. All right, talk Bye. to you later. <laughs> and then there were two for listeners. Um, so right. my quick response on that one was the way I turn a story or setting concept into a workable game system 
is I focus everything down on a single core emotional experience. What is the the emotional experience, the theme, the mood of this sort of perfect instance of play? Uh, so, for instance, for one of my projects, um, picture a group of kids playing soccer in the ruins of fallen starships. Mm. I like. So it's the combination of clearly everything went terribly wrong and there was a massive war, but there's still hope. There's there's a future and people are finding joy in the small things despite fallen dreadnoughts with possibly leaky reactors over there. Um, <laughs> Wait, <laughs> you kind of <laughs> snuck in that undertone and with such subtlety. I want to congratulate you on that. Thank you. Uh, so, um, or the song cultists, because uh, they're song cultists. But fundamentally, be, because I focus in on that emotional and sort of thematic core, that like core idealized instance of play, um, it gives me something really concrete to go towards and to measure. Because you find increasing instances of like things that are getting in close to that until you finally run into a perfect replica of the desired emotional experience. And then you know, okay, we, we got it. We just need to clean it up and refine it and encourage more of this to happen. But that is the platonic ideal of the game. Hmm. Thoughts? Dude, you can't just lay something like that just out there. <laughs> I certainly can. And will. Ah, oh, damn it. I mean, and that that kind of does actually start, I think, segueing into the next question in a way, because like talking about how you'll you're starting with your design. You know, that idea of starting with that feeling and letting that underlie everything. Um, yeah. See, now you're gonna have, now you're making me have all these disarrayed thoughts whenever I was, I was going with specific game mechanic stuff. <laughs> oh, yay, Anna is back to save me. Yay, we have an Anna. Sorry. <laughs> but it's, okay. it's not gonna Anna, save you. Failing, yeah. <sighs> I'm on my phone now. That's how I screwed up. Wow. Right. Uh, and it's relatively quiet. On so. Just so you know. What happened to Aloy? Aloy had to leave. Oh. Because okay. eight. And family. Yeah. No problem. Uh, so uh, we were just talking about how I design my games around an idealized instance of play focusing on a single sort of emotional touch point so that you can measure when things get close to that um, and uh, I was describing um, one of my games which all goes around um, 
a group of children playing soccer in the rubble of fallen starships. Um, so that there's this combination of clearly terrible things happened, and now, but there's still kids playing soccer, having fun, finding hope, youth, yada yada yada, uh, in the face of, in the wake of terrible things. So, I am seeing gears turning in Sarah's head. Yeah, I just I want to see more of those gears. I'm, I'm just, I'm comparing that, like, I don't think I start with an ideal of play in quite the same way you do, but also it's kind of like, you know, although all, all games have their different surrounding circumstances of, of how you come up with them. Like, like Velvet Glove was very much, is very much like, there is an experience I want players to have, and how can I make the system reinforce that mm-hmm. in a very similar way to what you're saying? Um, but it's it's still also being like totally fucking delighted whenever it, it goes entirely different, but is still satisfying, you know? I don't know. You actually kind of stymied me. <laughs> In which case, that sounds like a good place to punt it over to PBTA in specific. Advice yeah. specifically on how to make Powered by the Apocalypse games. Good thing we have an expert on this call, because <laughs> I'm not answering that question. Yeah. I mean, that's funny, because I don't entirely feel like an expert in that um, it's still something that I, like, I'm learning. Every time I, I make something or make a change, it's like, oh, that did not work the way I thought it did. Let's let's shift that again. But um, let's see. Specifically on making PBTA games. Um, make sure you play Apocalypse World. The original. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I say that because even today I went back to the original moves and read them and I was like what is the wording on that? How did they make that work? <laughs> um, so I, I don't think it, it hurts. Like, you may not be into post-apocalyptic fiction, but to see how it, it was done, like, you can't go wrong by playing it. And then you should sit down and learn the fuck out of moves and how they work. Uh, sitting down with the basic moves of any game and trying to like diagram it like it's a fucking sentence or something, you know? Like, what is this trigger? Why are they saying to roll with this stat? And how did they get these options? Because there's a there's like a limited number of forms of Apocalypse World moves, um, for the most part. Uh, luckily, I am actually looking at one. Except it's uh, Bluebeard's Bride, which breaks the moves, which is also a good thing. Um, But, you know, you've got the do a thing plus your stat and then it tells you what happens on a hit or a 7 to 9. You've you've got other ones that are like, oh, if you do this, you choose from this list. 
Um, if it's a 10 plus, you choose more. If it's seven to nine, you choose fewer. Like there are different for, there's a limited number of forms that can take. Um, but you need to, in order to make a good Apocalypse World game, you need to actually understand how moves work. It's the most important thing. Like you can mess up your setting, you can mess up your playbooks, but the moves are the core. So you need to know that inside and out. Um, and then otherwise just make sure that your idea is something you're really into and you're going to be okay with playing it a lot over the next two years. Like a lot. All the time. The only thing I have to add is that um, when I first encountered Apocalypse World, I didn't actually think it was that particularly versatile of a setting. So it has been a complete delight to me to find out how wrong I am and how many different kinds of stories can be told with it through some of the amazing female designers I know, both at Magpie and elsewhere. And I just, I love that, like, because on its face, you know, it's a very gritty, dark, you know, sex-driven, like, there's a lot going on in Apocalypse World, and the fact that you can sort of tinker around with it and make such cool things come out of it is really neat to me. I I think the most interesting advice on making Powered by the Apocalypse games is to realize that from uh, Megan Vincent's perspective, most of what you see in Apocalypse World is just Apocalypse World. You don't have to have a psychic maelstrom or count or um, uh, uh, wound uh, harm clocks that go to 11 um, on all of your PBTA games. Those are just things that are thematically appropriate for specifically Apocalypse World. So, with that view, looking at everything critically, and changing what the hell you want, you, I don't want stats, okay, I don't want dice, Okay, you can always purchase Undying from Magpie Games. Uh, if you don't want dice in your PBTA game, you can get Dream Askew if you want a GM-less version of PBTA. Um, that's also amazing and about like queer communities and it has some bits of fate in there. It's just delightful. Um, there's a lot of room for experimentation and growth and moving beyond the standard safe models. And I'm more and more encouraged by seeing people do that and stretching PBTA farther from the core. I mean, you could all be playing uh, inside the head of one of the a single protagonist going through a mansion <laughs> of some variety. I mean, that, that is pretty fucking weird. And brilliant. It doesn't feel weird when it's happening. It's a weird sprite. But no, you're, you're right, Jason. Like, there's a lot of good examples out there. And, and like Anna said, too, like, people take it and they make it their own, and that's fucking powerful. Um, I'm just traditionalist and suggest learning your basics before you fly. Oh, I think that's smart. Uh, I've not designed anything PBTA, but yeah, 
Uh, know your tools, right? Mm-hmm. Also, those tools are wicked sharp and will cut you. Oh, yeah. They are... Yes. Like, um, I have written the GM section for one PBTA game, and I've written another full PBTA game that's in late-stage playtesting. And it's a trip. Um... There, and, quite frankly, there's a lot of room to grow off of it, still. Uh, because the original Apocalypse World is very intentionally sprawling in certain design ways. Yeah. So you can hook into different sections of it and grow off of there. Um, you could have an entire game that's literally just... Um, the based off elaborating the pursuit chase seconded uh, cat and mouse um, sort of set of moves you can do another one entirely off of barter and how barter works as currency within the society and like let's run off that so because it's so so big it gives you a lot of interesting places to work from uh, using that as a touch point um, and everything's going to look different yeah so two more questions <laughs> one what is the single most important element of an RPG system that can determine its success or failure <laughs> I mean I don't know that there is just one. There's a lot of different pieces that have to work together, in my mind. Like, uh, if you have a brilliant setting and crap mechanics, if you have beautiful mechanics and a not great or original setting, if your art is terrible, if your layout is crappy, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of things that can take your game. I don't know that there's one that stands out to me. What about you, Sarah? Do you I mean, I would say, like, there's so many moving parts. There's, It's hard to say there is a single thing. Um, although I will say, and I may change my mind about this in two weeks. Who knows? Um, but I, I kind of want to say whether or not it's fun. And I mean fun in a broad sense. Uh, because I know whenever you talk about a horror game like Bluebeard's Bride, I often got asked, why would the, that be fun? That doesn't sound fun. It's like, well, you may not like horror games. Those people who do find it very fun. So it's like, it doesn't have to be fun for everybody. And um, it may not be fun all the time, but it, sh it, it does need to be something that can be fun. So like there was a very early version of Velvet Glove. We're playing it like nobody was having any fun. It was too dark, too gritty, too real. I was like, oh, this isn't fun. This is just like sexually harassing my friends. I'm going to stop now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so like um yeah uh so at some point on some level somehow the game must be fun otherwise i don't, I don't know why you're doing that instead of doing something else because you want to make Not games that fun. hurt well i mean but games hurting can be fun is my point i view that as engaging like that, I tend to just do a find and replace my vocabulary. And is it is it engaging? Because 
You you are engaged by Bluebeard's bride. Oh dear. In multiple <laughs> ways. I have fun when I run. <laughs> <laughs> like, how can I inflict the maximum amount of pain on the person playing this game? <laughs> um, my <That's> cool. <laughs> so single most important uh, element of any RPG system. So I have been banding about this little framework, and I realize I haven't ever done it on my own podcast, so I'll just ramble. Um, I break down games into four components. Uh, system, setting, situation, and subtext. System, the mechanics. Nice and simple. Uh, setting, the fictional uh, context of play. Situation, the reason why all of you people are actually playing and interacting with each other. Instead of randomly going to an inn and looking for a wizard because you need a reason to do a thing. Uh, and subtext. What your game is actually talking about and uh, how intentionally it is talking about that thing. I can think of one particular game that has pretty good uh, actually like rock solid setting, uh, uh, system has done a number of really good settings over the years the situation occasionally runs into the finding a wizard in a bar wizards have needs Jason <laughs> but the subtext is not intentional and that's how you get drow and half orcs because mm. it wasn't an intentional choice it was an unintentional choice. So I find that intentionally um, designing the subtext specifically is the most important in, from my perspective as a artist, as a creator, and as someone who doesn't want to create uh, blackface elves. Yeah. <laughs> like... I mean, I, I love me some Tolkien, um, but... I think a lot of fantasy settings and fiction are rooted in Tolkien, and they took the whole orc thing, and they took the whole, and uh, yeah, it's just, you can veer very quickly into bad racist garbage quickly. And it can also go very well if you intentionally put subtext. I, I mean, I am guessing that Velvet Glove and Bluebeard's Bride have a little bit of subtext there. T t tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not subtle subtext. I, I was going to say, it seems like <laughs> super blatant. <laughs> but, but, yeah. And, and I was refraining from starting uh, to get on a tangent about Appendix N. Um, but, yeah, I mean, but it's interesting because we didn't necessarily design Bluebeard's Bride in the moment for the most part about subtext. You know, so for me, it's a little bit of what comes out of that in play. And also, like Velvet Glove, 
because I'm occasionally dense, there was some subtext that I didn't get until it was pointed out to me. <laughs> I was like, oh, this uh, is saying something about me personally. Shit. You know? Uh, but, um, like, I think trying to avoid problematic aspects, it can be good, especially when they're, like, super easily identifiable as awful. Um... I don't know. I, I'm mostly just about intentionality. Intend what you design. Yeah, I can agree with that. <laughs> that the, you, you can design whatever the hell you want, but I want you as the artist to be having a voice, not just, well, these are the three books on my bookshelf, let's uncritically shove them into this game. <laughs> I wonder what the titles of these are. Oh, oh dear. Um... So terrible. But it doesn't do. It doesn't hurt to do your homework as a designer, though. And, yeah. And yeah. Uh, intentionality, whether or not you intended something, it can still hurt someone. Yeah. So, uh, that's where sensitivity readings come in, which I'm a big advocate of. And uh, you always want to pay somebody to do a sensitivity reading and call upon somebody that's in the community and give them money, whether it's uh, LGBTQ. Uh, people of color, women, any any group that is not like white hetero <laughs> yeah. men. Um, so that's my my advice for that. All right. So I believe that we have one last question, and then we can let people flee. Sweet. How is technology changing the design and publishing process? I'll let Sarah start. Uh, I so wish Eloy was here so we could talk about why I was laughing on the panel. <laughs> I I love I love his like optimism that anyone can learn InDesign just from tutorials. <laughs> I love it. Um, it's either that or Scribus. Get out of here with your Scribus. No, Scribus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you don't want to deal with uh, with InDesign, so I guess it's it's kind of like it's changing it in both a positive and a negative way. So clearly it is more, it is easier now for more people to do professional looking designs without training. That's awesome. It is also easier <laughs> for people to do really terrible looking games uh, because they, because once you make something accessible to everybody, people will decide that they're good at this and they know that papyrus is the best body font ever and then they will put that out in the world and my eyes will bleed listen um, comic sans is the hill i will die on hey hey you know, comic papyrus has you both beat <laughs> um so it's it's opening access which is a good thing but it's opening access and the bar is getting higher without that being communicated really like, there are still people who don't understand the idea of, like, putting hyperlinks in their PDFs or doing a really good table of contents or putting layers on their PDFs so whenever you go to print it at home, you're not printing their full-color background. Like, the technology is there, just the base level of knowledge hasn't caught up yet. Yeah. Yeah. So it's good and bad. I mean, the bar is lower. Uh... Which also means the bar is lower. Yeah, I mean, like all things that can cut both ways. I uh, 
had an e-publishing company several years ago, right at kind of the advent of the Kindle and electronic books and like the, the deluge, like once everybody could publish, it, there was zero quality control. Mm-hmm. And it also meant that the really quality stuff was getting buried in an avalanche of mediocrity. So technology is amazing. Like there's, you can learn just about anything via videos, whether you can learn to do it well is maybe arguable. I also am in Sarah's camp on InDesign, but <laughs> um, you know, technology, like I love technology. I think, especially from a marketing standpoint, it is a huge asset to be able to sell um, your book all over the world and talk about it with people on the other side of the world, people you would never otherwise meet. I think that's tremendous. Um, so it the world has gotten smaller the bar has gotten lower so my advice to people who are starting out is do the best you can right it's not gonna ever be perfect it's not ever gonna be maybe even exceptional but if you do your best if you get an editor or like if if you do the steps that need to be taken to get a um baseline of quality out it's better to take your time and do that because once you put out something really terrible um it's hard to take that back um and i know Aloy joked about how like his first edition was like so bad but i actually like it wasn't that bad that's the thing is like it it was still good right is second edition much better sure and that's you know because he's a great designer and like he continued to improve, but like, it's important to have standards so that people know they can rely on the quality of your goods because people, once they're burned, they're not going to buy your stuff again. And I, I think that also like translates to other positions besides just designers and writers. Like by making, by technology making it more accessible, people have started undervaluing more technical aspects of it so like um you know i make no secret of the fact that i charge more than a lot of layout artists mm-hmm. um i'm like hey student loans got to pay them back <laughs> but um you know so that then there also is the perception of why why would i pay you that much and it's like well you get a lot more with me than you would necessarily with someone who's charging less Mm-hmm. And also, I know more stuff and can fix more problems with the printer. Right. Um, and it also creates this perception, like, I, I love Magpie fans dearly. But they asked us why we didn't release the Word document of one of the books instead of waiting until it was laid out. And I that just puzzled me. <laughs> the Word they, they document? Were, yeah, they were just very upset that the layout was taking longer than they would have liked. Because I think, because they don't understand everything that goes into it. It's like explaining to my family what I do. Because, love them, but they don't quite get exactly what this is. Do you roll dice and talk (laughs) to each other? Or? Yeah. Now, you just, like, type it up in Word and then you send it to the printer, right? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, people just have no idea. So when you talk to them about indexing and contents and layout artists and 
making sure your page numbers are correct. Like they just, they kind of glaze over. And that's fine. If you are just a consumer of role-playing games, cool. You don't have to worry about that. You can enjoy your favorite games and never worry about what the layout artist went through to get that game to print. But like, if you want to be a game designer and you want to publish your stuff and you have control over those elements as opposed to like selling your game to somebody, um, yeah, those things matter. And and like talking to your artists and making sure that they're submitting art to you that's the right you know bleed and DPI and all the so like basically there's a lot of technological bits mm-hmm. that that go into this and that's also a good way of determining whether you want to be a publisher <laughs> or a designer you know because you don't have to be both no don't don't, <laughs> don't. help all you can and you can also totally release like a, a version with no art online and and that's awesome and you do you you know like that's cool um but you know it's funny it's like if you look at velvet glove the ash can every single bit of art on the cover and inside that book is creative commons it's free nice anyone can go out there and get that same art and use it in their game but no one does because no one knows how to do what i did (laughs) <laughs> well, it's a very distinctive hey. word. Did it. Um, so, could I go and pull the like the individual graphics? Yes, but I would not be able to do what you did. I mean, and that's cool, right? Like that—that's what makes your stuff special. And um, I don't want us to get too far afield, but yeah, I mean, tech can be a really great friend, and it allows you to uh, a lot of times price shop, which is. <laughs> look at those battle scars when it comes to things like printers sometimes like the price thing isn't always like I think Sarah's point is like she charges what she's worth as a layout artist and that I totally believe in like I am a very expensive editor a developmental editor when I tell people my prices they like usually choke but that's because I'm very particular about my projects. If I take your project on, I'm going to make it incredibly excellent. And so like, you know, you and I'm not the editor for everybody, just like Sarah isn't the layout for Like there are less expensive people out there. Yeah. You know, they may be a better fit for you. But um, yeah, I mean tech, I think learning what makes your game work for you um, and I really don't recommend doing everything yourself. You know, if you're a one-man shop and everything is perfect, you're still gonna have to hire an editor. Sorry. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. That, that is the that is the one expense. You can teach yourself in design. You can. I mean, you can do a lot of that stuff, but you still have to have a second person look at your manuscript. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to leave one last comment, and I think we're probably done. Um. Technology is changing the design and publishing process through things like podcasts and streaming and Twitch and the various other ways that we communicate all of this stuff. Uh, And I think that that's an incredibly useful tool for new designers. Go and watch how Sarah presented Zombie World on Twitch on the One Shot podcast so you can see how a master 
actually does this. Someone send me that link right now. <laughs> I'll find Why it for you. This? Oh. It's amazing. I'm really Aww. sad. Because it's Sarah. I mean, Aww. the Doombringer. I mean... <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to make it my mission to be like, I'm going to embarrass Sarah by telling her how amazing she is, like, at every turn. And then she's gonna it's be like, really easy. Jeez. <laughs> so, yes. I, I know it's a podcast, you can't see it, but I am shaking my head. <laughs> well, and when Jason called my name, he's like, is he in a meet? <laughs> I was like... I just, I kind of nodded, and there was like this big quiet, and I realized, oh, people are only hearing my voice, so, yeah. Because no one wants to see my ugly mug on a video. Um, and with that, I think <laughs> this is now an excellent time to cut the show. So, thank you all very much, and thank you all for listening.